Welcome to the Center for Ideas and Society at the University of California, Riverside, and the first of a series of panels on understanding Palestine. And today's, series, today's panel in the series is called Palestine, Occupation, Settler Colonialism, and Apartheid. Two further panels are scheduled that I hope you'll want to attend and register for. This second panel is called Palestine and the Law and will take place on Thursday, March the 7th. And the third panel in the series is called Indigenous Resistance, Settler Decolonization and Palestine, which is on Thursday, April the 25th. The panels are not intended to be immediate reactions to current events in historic Palestine or its global ramifications, though that is, of course, the context into which we will inevitably speaking, be speaking today and over the next couple of months. Their main intent is to offer the sorely missing background for understanding Palestine, one of the most significant and consequential issues of our time, as the colonization of Palestinian lands continues and Palestinian resistance to Israel's appropriation of its lands and its destruction of Palestinian institutions and means of living continues apace. The current war on Gaza threatens to spark regional and even global conflicts and to impact the upcoming U.S. elections. Simply then, as a matter of informed citizenship, understanding Palestine is critical. But for those of us who wish to take action to bring justice to Palestine, a nuanced and informed understanding of the situation and of the history of Palestine's struggles is imperative to inform our tactics and strategies. Hopefully then, the series will perform a double function of information and of informing the actions we urgently need to take. First, of course, to end the slaughter and then to end the ongoing Nakba or catastrophe about which we'll be speaking more about shortly. Since US media remains dominated by the perspectives of Israel and of its most ardent material and political supporter, President Biden's White House, these panels have sought to foreground the voices of Palestinian scholars, legal experts, and activists as far as possible. It's a small way to correct the balance in what is, as well as being a destructive military assault, also an information war. I'd like to begin by thanking our co-sponsors, the Center for Ideas and Society, and the panel is part of the CIS's program stream, Decolonizing Humanism. And the panel is co-sponsored by Faculty for Justice in Palestine at UCR, the Departments of English, Ethnic Studies, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Hispanic Studies, and by the Holstein Family and Community Chair in Religious Studies. And I'd like to give a, a big thank you to all of our sponsors who've made this important series possible. These panels are being recorded and will be shown for later viewing on CIS's YouTube channel and for audio podcast on Pacifica Station KPFK here in Los Angeles SWANA region radio show at anchor.fm slash SWANA. You can pose questions at any time in the chat function and we'll be responding to as many as we can after the panelists have addressed some of the issues for today's event. So let me say a big welcome to our speakers today, Jess Gannam from the University of California, San Francisco, Eman Ganayam at the Washington University in St. Louis, and Jennifer Moganam at University of California, Santa Cruz. Dr. Jess Gannam is Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Global Health Sciences in the School of Medicine at UCSF. 
His research areas include evaluating the long-term health consequences of war on displaced communities and the psychological and psychiatric effects of armed conflict on children. Dr. Ganem also does research in the area of global health and post-traumatic stress disorder and has developed community health clinics in the Middle East that focus on developing community-based treatment programs for families in crisis. Past president of the Arab Cultural and Community Center and the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee in San Francisco, Dr. Ganem is also a consultant with the Center for Constitutional Rights, Reprieve, and other international NGOs that work with torture survivors. He's been a frequent visitor to Gaza over the past several decades. Eman Ganayem is a postdoctoral fellow in American Cultural Studies at Washington University, St. Louis. She earned her PhD in English with minor degrees in American Indian Studies and Gender and Women's Studies from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Her research examines Palestinian and American Indian literatures and the larger context of global indigenous and refugee narratives through a framework of interconnected settler colonialisms and comparative indigeneities. And last but not least, Jennifer Moganam is an assistant professor in the Department of Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at UC Santa Cruz. She's also a UC Mellon Humanities Initiative Early Faculty Fellow and Affiliate Faculty with the Center for the Middle East and North Africa. She's a critical cross-disciplinary scholar of Palestinian and Arab transnational movements, third world solidarities, gendered power in anti-colonial struggle, violence, refuge, and revolution. Her current book project centers and analyzes the coalitional formation between the Palestinian Revolution and Lebanese opposition coalition during the Lebanese Civil War. Jennifer has organized in transnational Palestinian and Arab community spaces for nearly 20 years, most recently as a founding and active member of the Palestinian Feminist Collective. Her work, while often historical, is also always forward-looking towards the possibilities of decolonization and building a new world. Thank you all for being here. Jess, let me start with you. Um, this morning, uh, it was reported that by now 27,500 Palestinian civilians have officially been killed. And uh, the Israeli assault continues. The invasion of Rafah is beginning, I think, even as we speak, where possibly a million Palestinians from Gaza have now taken refuge. And though I said we weren't going to be being reactive, I think it's very important to start with an update on the situation there. And I know you know the situation on the ground very well. So please fill us in on, on what's actually happening and any background you want to give. Uh, thank you, David. Um, yeah, contrary to what you may or may not be hearing um, in the news, the situation in Gaza is not not just catastrophic, but it's worsening rather significantly. And as you, as you mentioned, you know the 27.5 thousand civilian Palestinians that have perished uh, in, in the course of this genocide since October 7th doesn't even take into account the thousands that remain unaccounted for and buried underneath the rubble. Um, we estimate that close to 14,000 uh, children have been killed since October 7th. Um, thousands remain unaccounted for. Um, the, the mass starvation that is occurring right now, and it's important to note that the starvation is being worsened 
by recent political events when the only the major food distribution infrastructure connected to the United Nations and UNRWA has been the target of political attacks and, and is economically, um, you know, in a very difficult situation such that with the limited ability that they had to feed Palestinians in Gaza is even more uh, incapacitated right now. So the mass starvation is, is really catastrophic where more than 90% of Palestinians in Gaza are barely able to get a meal a day. Um, on the medical side, which is very troubling, we know that there's not a single functioning hospital anywhere in Gaza right now. And of the few remaining hospitals that have some functionality, they are simply sites of caretaking. They're not really able to provide the adequate medical care necessary to, to treat the acute consequences of genocide, let alone all the chronic health conditions that um, remain untreated right now for, for the majority of Palestinians in Gaza right now. But one area of particular concern uh, that I've been hearing about from colleagues on the ground in Gaza is that, you know, we're in the middle of uh, uh, virus season. You know, this is a very infectious time for, for, you know, for all of us right now. We know that. We know that there have been significant increases in, in, in viral infections right now here uh, where we are uh, in the States. But in Gaza right now, because there has not been uh, any um, influx of vaccinations for, for children and adults in Gaza right now, there appears to be a very significant pandemic-like phenomenon where all of these viral infections, uh, RSV, COVID, and childhood infections that are usually well-managed in Gaza despite the blockade are essentially out of control. So there's speculation right now that uh, as many people that have died at the hands of the military invasion, as many, if not more, may die from the lack of medical care and the spreading infectious disease that's going on right now. I also want to make mention of really quick that it's cold in Gaza right now. It's freezing. It, it's raining periodically. Most Palestinians, as you've, as you've noted in the south now, uh, are being squeezed uh, in the south right now, most of whom many of whom I should say are living in tents and don't have adequate shelter. So the situation is very dire. And given what we're seeing on the ground in Gaza, there's no expectation or idea that, the, that this will improve anytime soon. Again, despite what you're hearing from various sources, either from the US or the Israeli government. So uh, in a nutshell, David, it's, it's very dire. Well, just to, just to follow up quickly, um... Is this situation simply an accident of military conflict, or in your view, is it a more deliberate closing off of medical facilities, shattering of hospitals, and so forth? Well, I, I have been actually talking about the deliberate attempt to undermine and destroy healthcare infrastructure, not just in Gaza, but in, in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and the whole of historic Palestine for many decades now. And so what's clear to me in, in surveying the situation on the ground in Gaza and speaking to my colleagues who are in hospitals and in clinics and attempting to, to tend to the medical needs of Palestinians in Gaza, there is no doubt whatsoever and there's no contrary evidence to, to kind of go against what I'm about to say here, but there is compelling evidence to support the, the conclusion 
that uh, Israel and the Israeli military have not only directly targeted hospitals, but they've targeted healthcare workers. They've targeted physicians, nurses, and support staff. They, over 500 healthcare workers have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. Hundreds have been arrested, detained, and in some cases tortured. The denial of medical supplies into Gaza is being denied by the Israeli government every single day. So to say that this is a consequence of the of the war on Gaza begs the the reality and the and the real conclusion, which is this is part of the occupation. This is part of the attempt to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from Gaza. It, what we call is the slow uh, intended consequence of occupation, which is to de-Palestinianize indigenous Palestinians from the whole of Palestine that is being accelerated, if you will, in Gaza right now. So the attacks on healthcare facilities and healthcare workers is unlike anything we've seen in the modern era in any warfare, even looking back to World War II, this deliberate attempt to target hospitals, to kill healthcare workers, to kill patients, to die, deny them access to medical care. It goes without saying, that this contravenes international humanitarian law and the law of war, um, that's that's obvious. But the deliberateness of it, and then, and maybe we can get into this a little bit later, the, the silence of organized medicine uh, in the United States, especially in the face of this genocide and the attacks on healthcare and the attacks on healthcare workers is, is rather profound. So there's no other conclusion, rather, and no data to support a conclusion other than this is a deliberate attempt to undermine any healthcare provision to Palestinians in Gaza and to undermine the healthcare infrastructure with the intent to continue the, the slow uh, and uh, nature of the ethnic cleansing for Palestinians in Gaza. Just let me um, come back to that, that question of the lack of solidarity from the medical profession in not just the United States, but across the Western world in, in, uh, in most respects. And just ask you before we move to that question, in your view as, as a medical practitioner, suppose there were a ceasefire tomorrow, which unfortunately seems highly unlikely, how long will it take not only the population, but that's important, but also the medical infrastructure of Gaza to recover. What, what are we looking at here? Well, we've been thinking about that, David, and there have been ongoing discussions among my colleagues here in Europe and in, and in Palestine uh, on that very question. And if there were a ceasefire today, um, um, that the minimum amount of time that it would take, and I'm, I'm going to separate it between uh, physical uh, restoration and psychiatric or mental health restoration, because they're very different. We're talking about a minimum of six months just to be able to restore the ability to treat the chronic illnesses that are being denied Palestinians in Gaza right now. We're just talking about the provision of basic you know, uh, medical care to treat chronic illnesses, right? Like diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesteremia, all of these things that many Palestinians have regular chronic illnesses. There are childhood chronic illnesses. You know, there, there are 
there are OBGYN chronic illnesses, and it will take a minimum if there was the free flow of medical uh, infrastructure and medications and, and other aspects of medical care freely into guts would take a minimum, a minimum of six months to treat the physical aspects. And then in terms of rebuilding the healthcare infrastructure, we're talking about rebuilding hospitals, rebuilding, uh, you know, the, the actual equipment to go into to rebuild it, restaffing, you know, healthcare workers and getting them retrained again with the, the grave loss of healthcare workers that we found. We're talking about uh, at least another year afterwards at a minimum. And we're really talking about five to 10 years to rebuild the healthcare infrastructure to deal with the physical aspects of the devastation that has been brought onto Palestinians in Gaza. Now, we probably don't have a lot of time to go over it right now, but you know, my area of specialty is talking about the the kind of psychiatric and mental health consequences of of settler colonialism and occupation and now genocide, unfortunately. And in that case, we're not talking about months. We're not talking about years. We're talking about decades, if not generations, that it's going to take to help manage the long-term traumatic consequences of what Palestinians in Gaza have been facing. Let's not forget that Gaza has been under a siege now for some 15, 16 years, and that if you're a child that is 16 years old in Gaza right now, you've lived through five catastrophic war events. The amount of trauma that Palestinian children are subjected to is unlike any traumatic exposure that children anywhere in the world are exposed to. And we've done these studies. We've compared them with Iraqi children, with Syrian children, with children in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and in the, in the global south, looking at the amount of traumatic exposure and the consequences in Palestinian children, especially those in Gaza, have been exposed to a kind and level and extent of traumatic exposure, unlike anybody, any community, any child anywhere in the world. And looking at how that's going to be managed and, and you know, uh, attempted to kind of engage with is going to take generations. And you know me, I, 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 this is a topic that is, is very, very important for me. And perhaps if there's time later on in our discussion today, I'd, I'd be happy to elaborate on that. Thank you, Jess. And we'll definitely come back to that because it's an absolutely crucial question. But I, I did want to turn to Jennifer. Um, Jennifer, you, you really study the longer history of the Palestinian struggle and I wanted to ask you, since, um, you know, almost on the day of October 7th and the Operation Al-Aqsa flood that Hamas conducted, the um, the UN Rapporteur for Palestine already was asking for this to be placed in a longer context. And so, of course, I'm going to turn to you to, to ask for some overall context and history behind this particular current military assault on Asga. And it's just horrific toll of civilian lives, but it's not the first time this has happened. And as you do so, and I just wondered, um, I used the expression Nakba um, earlier in introducing the panels, and it may not be an expression that's completely familiar to all of our audience. So I wondered if you could explain what's meant by calling this as Palestinians have been, been doing a second Nakba or simply a part of an ongoing Nakba. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, and I'm really happy to be here alongside great 
colleagues and friends. Um, I will, yes, yeah, start by, I think it's really important, especially given um, the sort of public media aspect of how October 7th has been framed as this pivotal moment. I think historicizing that context is really important. So when we're talking about Palestine, we're talking about a hundred years of modern colonialism, first of British military occupation and mandate, and then um, beginning in uh, late 1947 when the British leave and crystallize on um, May 15th, 1948, what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, um, which is translated as catastrophe. Um, but what we know and what we've learned from other indigenous scholars, as well as through our own um, familial and intergenerational discussions, is that this um, moment of real crystallized settlement, May 15th, 1948, is the day that the Zionist state declared itself a state. Um, but we know that that process of trying to stay and settle the land is an ongoing process. And so um, what indigenous scholars and settler colonial scholars refer to as a structure, not an event, Palestinians are have been calling for some time an ongoing Nakba. Um, and that really is, so there was a large ethnic cleansing um, from when the British left Palestine through and past May 15, 1948, um, where over 500 villages were depopulated and destroyed. And um, <clears throat> uh, the majority, about, uh, I think, two-thirds of the population, over 750,000 Palestinians were forced to flee. And so were made refugees, mostly in bordering countries. Um, so in Lebanon, Syria, physically walking on foot, crossing borders, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, a little bit in Egypt, but also into the West Bank and Gaza. Um, so when we think about Gaza, what we know also is that um, about two thirds of the population in Gaza is a refugee population. Um, and so I can come back to this later, but um, what I see happening right now in Gaza is also an attack on the question of refugees and the Palestinian right of return. Um, because we're a population that is the majority in exile outside of our um, original homes and homelands, uh, to the tune of, you know, like 11, about 11 million Palestinians who live outside of the historic lands of Palestine, uh, the refugee struggle it, and um, the core principle of the right of return, which is a key tenet of the Palestinian liberation struggle, is an integral part of um, any kind of uh, end game within um this sort of protracted colonial reality and colonial um condition that palestinians see themselves in and so um when we there's so many different parts to thinking about the ongoing nakba 
we have this moment in 1948. We have the development of refugee camps, which are supposed to be temporary places, right, of refuge. And now we're going on 76 years of intergenerational families being born into um, refugee camps. So there's the permanence to this kind of temporary space of the camp um, uh, that, you know, uh, oftentimes people um, in those spaces are in dire conditions and um, it varies from place to place, but it also is a site for maintaining that connection to the Palestinian struggle to the right of return. It also is a communal space and feeling of home in the void of kind of a home in Palestine. Um, one of the, the and, and so we've actually seen throughout the decades attacks on the camps um, over and over again. So starting um, especially in Lebanon during the Lebanese Civil War, which is a period where I study three um, Palestinian refugee camps were um, aggressed and completely destroyed. We've seen that happening again, um, for example, in Syria post-2011. Um, and we see just the, uh, the sort of infringement upon the refugee struggle um, in general through those destructions. And it raises questions around um, resettlement and different routes of survival for um, Palestinian refugees who, um, you know, don't hold citizenship to any place in the world. And so they have a lot of vulnerabilities um, different from those of us who are in the far exile, far diaspora, or um, some who have, for example, Jordanian citizenship, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that was really striking for me uh, watching what's been happening in Gaza is the first use of those um, gigantic bombs that created those like crater-like um, sort of images on the, the land of in Gaza was uh, directed at Jabali refugee camp. Um, and so this is a war on so much of the Palestinian population and so much of the Palestinian infrastructure. It's like a expedited um, form of the ongoing genocide or um, definitely a, a second Nakba that people are talking about or a recurring Nakba because so we have so many people displaced. It is targeting, as Jess was saying, hospitals, medical workers. Of course, we're seeing press being targeted. Um, we're seeing uh, women, uh, menstruating women, pregnant women, and just reproductive rights in general being targeted in Gaza. Um, we're seeing men being targeted and emasculated, something I don't think is talked about enough because there is this tendency to talk about women and children, which of course, um, I mean, this is a war on children. We're, I mean, half, almost half, I think the casualties are children, 
Um, and so it's really a war on all facets of Palestinian society. And I would add to that also the extinguishing of the refugee, you know, and this question, um, while simultaneously creating the potential for another crisis of refuge within the Palestinian landscape. So we have people, you know, who are in Gaza who maybe had previously been in Syria or Lebanon, you know, who relocated back to Gaza after particular moments of war, and now they're being displaced again. So for many, this could be a second Nakba or a third Nakba even. Um, and so these are some of the relationships, I think, that we're seeing to this moment of expedited death. But we have a condition, I think, especially in Gaza, but also throughout Palestine, of being conditioned around um, and beyond even, right? But of being conditioned around this sort of um, move towards death or this expectation that life is not guaranteed, right? That, um, you know, I was just hearing yesterday, someone was talking about children being interviewed about what their dreams were and what they aspired to be. And 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 they their response was not when I grow up, but if I grow up. Um, and I think that's really telling of the moment we're currently in. Um, and I'll end there for now. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, that's a, a pretty grim portrait of what's going on, but probably not grim enough to really describe what happens when something like 400,000 structures have been destroyed, um, most of which were multiple family occupied. And the just the abolition of the whole landscape of living in, in Oresca. This is, of course, as you were saying, not something that has suddenly sprung up since October the 7th, but something that, that has been ongoing for some time. And this panel is, is in part, I hope, devoted to trying to clarify some of the terms we use for what has been happening since and even before 1948 and Israel's so-called Declaration of Independence. Um, Eman, can I turn to you, since you work specifically on settler colonialism, and ask you if you can give us a kind of uh, descriptive account of what we mean when we say Israel is a settler colony. What are we comparing it to? What are what are the terms that we're using? And again, um, the other term that that is being used more and more frequently since Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International, the United Nations uh, Council for uh, West Asia, and also Israel's own human rights organization, organization Betzalem, have all in recent years said that what Israel practices is tantamount to a regime of apartheid. I wonder if you could help us sort out those terms, apartheid on the one hand, settler colonialism on the other. Is apartheid always a part of settler colonialism? Does settler colonialism demand apartheid? And then I want to come back to the other term that has more recently become prominent in, in public, which is the term of genocide. But, but 
maybe let's start with settler colonialism and, and apartheid. Thank you, Anand. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, David. I um, uh, also want to say that I'm honored to be in the company of Dr. Ghanam and Jennifer, who's a close friend and an amazing human. Um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what, what do I want to say about settler colonialism? And the thing that came to mind immediately is um, this concept that I've been thinking about for almost a year. And it comes from um, this book titled Decolonizing Diasporas by Yumara Figueroa Vasquez. And in a very brief moment in her introduction, um, first of all, the book is basically about what she terms um, like Afro-Atlantic narratives. So how do we gauge um, uh, blackness beyond just the African-American, right? Thinking about Latin America, thinking about the Caribbean, um, thinking about identity beyond just universalizing it, you know? And she briefly mentions how when you, when you impose a certain, in her context, when you impose a certain definition or a certain signifier for blackness, you may fall into participating in what she calls generic violence. And generic violence is basically a violence caused by enforcing terminology and enforcing genre in a way where the conversation stops being about lived experience and becomes more about how do we convince people that this term applies to us. And I think that the Palestinians have been having to engage for decades in an exercise and a practice of using as many terms as legible for people to communicate our experience. And so I want to frame my comments around the issue with terms, inherently so, where you look into the history, you know, for instance, you have um, Faiz uh, Sayer, who in 1967 publishes a book titled The Zionist Colonialism of Palestine, you know, and it's a study into how Zionism functions as a colonization in Palestine. This is well before um, US-based scholarship begins to use the term, right? And you look into how Palestinians on the ground think about, I was gonna slip into saying their occupation and just say that they, they use the term occupation, you know? An occupation um, connotes colonization, you know, it means both to settle and to colonize, right? So I wanna say that these terms are highly useful when the engagement with these terms is not on the basis of um, making something comprehensible, but more so, I am already convinced that the Palestinians are going through a colonization. Let me see how we can use these terms to toward liberation. So from the theory of things into the actual practice of decolonization and liberation. And I would say settler colonialism in my own research and in many Palestinian, like 
much of Palestinian scholarship is useful to maybe not so much, like I said, um, convince others about what that like the 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 kind of what the violence we experience, but in kind of tapping into um, how or what Zionism is and how it connects to other forms of colonization. Because beyond parallels, beyond the fact that, you know, US settler colonialism and Zionist settler colonialism and other forms of, or other settler colonies are comparable, they're also very much interconnected. You look at 19th century Zionist literature and someone like Theodore Herzl who wrote the Jewish question, the manifesto that started, you know, the Israeli project, very clearly says in that document that the Israeli or the Jewish settlers in Palestine will be like the Puritans. So you see these clear examples where the US or the United States and the United States um, as a project of settler nationalism and a settler nation state is the blueprint for the Zionist project. So beside you know, these connections is also, you know, and for for just like, you know, Jennifer defined the Nakba for, for those who need a definition for what Zionism is, Zionism is an ideology that really crystallized in the 19th century as a political ideology or a political project of um, um, establishing a Jewish nation state in Palestine. And it's not, it wasn't always Palestine, there were other projects involved. There was um, West Africa at some point. There was um, Mordecai Noah, for instance, who was the first uh, Jewish American diplomat who, want, who wanted to start uh, Israel or what he called Arar, which comes from the Bible um, in New York, you know? So there are so many templates for that, but it really became a project that is realizable when Palestine became the, the the goal or the um, the destination for it. And it's very important here to establish that um, the Zionist colonial project in Palestine started off with a genocidal intent. There was never an intent to cohabitate. There was never an intent to coexist. There was never um, a kind of kind of diplomatic approach. And there's an interesting moment also in Herzl that I think about a lot where he says, in reference to the early Jewish settlers who mostly came from East Europe um, as an outcome of the pogroms in East Europe and of you know one of the biggest Jewish refugee crises in, the, in modern history. And he has this he has this line in his manifesto where he says, desperate people make the best colonizers. And he was really capitalizing on people's feelings here to establish a nation state where people are so desperate that they would resort to all means necessary to establish some kind of promise of a haven that is really basically genocidal. Um, and so, Next to that, you know, I'm I'm thinking also of how, you know, there there is also beside the term settler colonialism, 
Israelis have recently been really like weaponizing the term indigeneity. They've also been coding uh, decolonization as a racism. Um, in terms of, for instance, the relationship that you asked about uh, between settler colonialism and apartheid, you know, I've 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 taught about settler colonialism for a few years, and every time I ask my students to tell me what the distinction is between settler colonialism and racism, which apartheid would fall under, they would say, and this is. This is after thinking about it. This is this is you know one of the introductory classes. They haven't read the stuff that I assigned yet, and they would immediately their immediate response would go, um, "Settler colonialism affects Native people, and racism affects Black people." And you see how the American consciousness about these terms is really problematic because racism is a tool of settler colonialism. It has always been. It will always be. And Israel as a settler colonial project has been really capitalizing on or weaponizing this cognitive dissonance between the connection of these terms. I was going to give as another example, um, like even terms like from, from the river to the sea now is almost somehow the biggest taboo to say, where Israelis comfortably say it, also as a genocidal intent, by the way, because it means ethnic cleansing. But as an indigenous terminology, from the water to the water, as a hope and a goal for freedom, it's not acceptable, you know? And you have, um, you really, terminology has become, you know, people are calling it uh, a war of words. And if I would, if I would um, assign the place where it's, it's becoming more and more an issue, even beyond, you know, in Palestine, the real violence is the genocide in the United States. It's, 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 the world, it's the war of terminology. And the issue with it is that it's it becomes, especially in academic spaces, the conversation becomes about what things mean, how to prove that Palestinians, let's say, are indigenous, than to really end the genocide, right? And really free Palestine. I'll also stop here and share more later. Well, I did actually want to come back to, to the question of genocide in just one second, but I, I wondered if you could just say briefly what either settler colonialism and or apartheid looked like for Palestinians on the ground. Oh, absolutely. Um, both within Israel, so-called proper, and also within within the occupied West Bank, as it's sometimes called, or in East Jerusalem. So in, in the various sectors in which Palestinians are subject to Israeli rule, what does settler colonialism look like? What does apartheid look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the biggest example that people gave of apartheid, the example on the ground, the example I can also give from my experience as someone who is only allowed access to the um, quote-unquote West Bank, is the separation wall. So the apartheid, what people call Jidar uh, al-Fasl al-Ansari, or the wall of racial segregation, or the apartheid wall, now is becoming more and more of an established terminology, um, really divides um, the land very violently so, I must add, in ways that affect the environment and affects the, affects the people um, into what is, um, quote-unquote, Israeli territory, 
and what's um, what Palestinians um, have access to. And then you have Gaza being a very uh, special case because of the siege. So also that comes with um, the way um, the streets are designed, the way the services are offered. There are streets where um, only Israelis can drive within the West Bank. You know, there's a lot of illegal settlements in the West Bank. And even with the ongoing genocide, Israelis haven't really stopped into creating more and more illegal settlements. Um, other forms of apartheid or, you know, this is where things bleed into settler colonialism and apartheid because settler colonialism is also comes with um, um, rituals of surveillance and confinement and expulsion. So beyond the obvious examples of what we're seeing now with the displacement of a lot of Palestinians in Gaza, you have um, um, uh, denying uh, movement for other Palestinians in other parts of historic Palestine. Um, you have um, uh, the highest, the biggest, um, uh, what do I call it? You know, the biggest mass arrests um, in the history of Palestine with I think close to 10,000 people, if not more, have been arrested since October 7. Um, and this is where you have the alignment between, for instance, settler colonialism or Israeli settler colonialism and U.S. settler colonialism, because confinement here, whether in the, pro whether in the process of making reservations, uh, making um, uh, Japanese American internment camps, um, detention centers, or in prisons, the U.S. has the largest uh, prison population. You see the you see the mirroring here. This is a way through which Israelis can um, find some kind of um, legitimize some kind of legal basis to um, to continue to surveil and um, control Palestinian bodies and lives. Thanks, um, other sorry. oh sorry no go ahead go, please go ahead. Well, I was going to say settler colonialism is also very like deeply cultural as well, and so. Israeli education completely excludes the Palestinian narrative. You know, there's always that um, that propaganda that uh, Palestinians teach their children to hate um, to hate the Jewish people, and in reality, it's actually this is prevalent really in Israeli education and academic institutions, and we can see that this is also an interconnectedness between the United States and. Um, the Israelis, you see really academic institutions being a large part and a large contributor to the continuation of settler colonialism through agreements and uh, collaborations that keep um, that keep you know the Israeli propaganda going. I only found out recently that all these centers around the country here that are called like Israeli um, studies of Israel, or Israeli studies, whatever they're called, are actually funded directly by the Israeli government and are required, if you are someone who's affiliated to these centers, to have the word Israel in every course that you teach. And this is alarming because now Zionists or Zionist Americans are going all the way to the US Department of Education to contest the fact that a lot of Palestinians and a lot of non-Palestinians who teach about Palestine are put and have always put Palestine in their syllabus as something that is uh, racial targeting of Jewish students and something that is an infringement upon uh, DEI, right? So you see settler colonialism 
really infiltrating aspect, all aspects of our consciousness and learning and knowledge. Yeah, that is something I hope we can come back to in, in a moment. Um, but let me turn to Jess for a second. Jess, um, you've already referred to what's happening in Israel right now as a, a case of genocide. And of course, Israel's current assault on Gaza has been charged with genocide both by South Africa at the International Court of Justice and by the Center for Constitutional Rights on behalf of Palestinian clients in the United States and Gaza also. I'm not sure if you served as a consultant for the Center for Constitutional Rights on that particular case, and I'd love to hear about that. But it's significant that both courts found the charges more than plausible and have asked for cessations of military actions, not quite asking for a full ceasefire, but in practice to cease the, the acts that are considered to be plausibly genocidal would entail a ceasefire, I think. Um, the draconian siege or blockade of Gaza since 2007 has also been described as a slow or creeping genocide. When we use this term, what is the definition we should be thinking about and how does Israel and its actions conform to this charge of genocide and how, how would you define that just wow really good question and and i, I want to go back to something iman said because i think it's really really important which is when we engage in this kind of discussion about is it or is it not genocide this is a this is a music to the ears of uh, israeli propagandists because then they get to engage with us about well, maybe, but not exactly genocide. It's, you know, and and as Palestinians, we're used to this, this kind of uh, this kind of attack on on the use of words and who owns words and who gets to use certain words and what communities cannot use certain words, and just the whole engagement about whether or not and this is basically the United States and Israel kind of taking on this discussion about is it or is it not genocide, I think we need to take a step back and say, look at the magnitude and the intensity of the destruction and the death that is happening and is being leveled against the civilian population in Gaza that is already under siege and the number of people and the number of buildings that have been destroyed and the destruction of generations of infrastructure both physical infrastructure, cultural infrastructure, psychological infrastructure, that it really begs the question that we even have to have this discussion, is it or is it not genocide? By every legal definition, according to the ICJ and the Center on Constitutional Rights, which I was asked to be an expert on that, that filing against uh, uh, the Biden administration in the United States, even even legal scholars say that there is enough compelling evidence to presume to move these cases forward. You know, whether it's the ICJ, which said there is presumptive evidence enough to push this case forward, which means that we do find the evidence for genocide as defined, you know, legally. And in the CCR case, if you read it carefully, when the judge uh, uh, gave their ruling on this, he, he said something very interesting. He said, yeah, I, I kind of think this is a worthwhile case and it's genocide, but it's outside of my purview. 
uh, of legal jurisdiction. So it's amazing to me to see how both of these rulings get, and I'm making up this word, by the way, propagandized, used in Israeli and American propaganda to say, well, it's not really genocide or, you know, look at these are, these are quote, wins when we have to take a step back and understand the enormity of the perversity of this kind of analysis when we see what's happening on the ground, when we see the reality of what's happening to the civilians, when we see the reality of the destruction that's happening in Gaza right now, because I think any sentient human being who is uh, aware of what's happening in Gaza right now, and not just in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, and in 1948, people with any amount of... Um, common sense and understanding about what is happening there would absolutely and unequivocally agree that this is a genocide fast if you're living in Gaza and maybe unfolding in the West Bank, Jerusalem and in 1948. So the, the, the fact of the discussion, the fact that this even becomes a point of argument, it tells you about the depths of depravity, I think, in terms of how the United States and Israel engages with this on the international stage. And, you know, we, we have to say to the ICJ, you know, uh, regardless of how one feels about the decision, you know, as a Palestinian, you know, at least they found that it, the case was worth going forward. And with the CCR, uh, uh, you know, application and uh, lawsuit, at least the judge said, yeah, it's kind of obvious, but it, it's out of my jurisdiction. So. I think it seems rather unequivocal to to the global community that this is a genocide, despite what uh, despite what the State Department or the White House or what uh, ministers in Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet will say. Uh, this is a genocide. Thank you, Jess. That, that's very helpful. I, I wanted to turn to you, Jennifer, and ask you to put your activist hat on for a second, uh, or for longer than a second. Um, we've been thinking about these terms, how they apply, what they mean. What I'm curious about is what difference it would make to the actual practice of Palestinians struggling for liberation and of their uh, civil society solidarity supporters in this country and elsewhere, how we think about what Israel is. Does, does the different terms that we might use actually affect our tactics and our practice? For example, if we say, you know, we charge you with genocide, as, as which is now quite a frequent chant in demonstrations, what are the consequences of that in thinking of how to proceed tactically, strategically, if we charge apartheid, you know, how are we thinking about boycott and divestment? And so do you have any reflections on on how each of these different modes of analysis of what Israel actually is as an entity um, working out in practice on the ground as people organize and think about how to strategize a larger campaign? Yeah, I think this is a good question and one that as we get maybe further away from this heightened moment, we can also think about more deeply, I think, especially for the last 122 days, 
it's been very much a moment of emergency response, um, you know, doing everything we can and anything we can to kind of move and raise our voices. We do see that sort of popular opinion, I think, is changing and there's sort of a delusion uh, in the difference between those opinions and the more institutional um, perspectives of their government or mainstream media and things like that. Um, but this is a really interesting question that I think does require further examination. Um, there are different strategies for kind of switching between some of these different terminologies. I think for a very long time, um, using a framework around international law, around human rights, around apartheid has been really compelling for bringing in a larger sort of solidarity movement into um, the question of Palestine, which has for so long been a controversial question for even some of the most um, principled social justice allies, right? Because there's, um, a lot of different dimensions at play. There's a lot of uh, different faces of repression, right? Um, and so it's been building over the years. And so I think that those frameworks have served a purpose. While Palestinians, I think, have long acknowledged not maybe not everybody, right? We're not a homogenous group, but many organizers have acknowledge that there are limitations to these frameworks to thinking about apartheid or a direct parallel to South Africa because what we're seeing isn't sort of a copy-paste model, right? There are these differences um, between uh, the different colonial realities in those two different places, for example. Um, same thing with international law as being a really effective tool while also knowing that those international systems have time and time again failed us. Um, now the terms I think have, and I do believe that it's through growing slowly these kinds of solidarity relationships that the terms of the conversation have changed in really important ways. Um, I think there are different sort of legal as well as emotive utilities to using words like apartheid or genocide. Um, and I think those are important tactics to consider Similarly, with some of the more advocacy-related work that's been happening in the United States, of course, um, many of us know that the likelihood of the United States imposing a ceasefire is probably very small, um, and especially at the local city level is small, right? But what is the utility behind these campaigns and garnering a larger support? I think these are important questions to think about. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have all the answers neatly packaged yet, especially through this moment, but I think um, noise is being made in all these different kinds of directions. And right now that's a good thing. I think um, the more 
comprehensively and expansively, we can start to understand the situation of ongoing sort of Zionist colonization, the better. Iman raised an important part about imprisonment. I think we um, we see how settlement, settler colonial structures, and the carceral state actually not only work together, but are uh, they necessitate one another in order to implement the Zionist project. So I think bringing in all of these different dimensions um, is helpful for us working towards, I don't know that we're there yet, but working towards what is that comprehensive framework um, that really defines Palestine and the specific character that it offers um, in terms of these different sort of systems of repression. Uh, and so I think, um, I think that the noise has been stronger than it's ever been. Uh, we're really in a moment where not only has this been sort of the longest period of expedited struggle that we've, uh, or repression that we've seen in a long time, um, but also the longest period of really heightened and strong forms of resistance um, in the different places in which people are challenging this moment, right? And um, and so while I painted maybe a more grim picture earlier, I think we all also always have to look at, yes, there is a lot of um, suffering. There's a lot of oppression um, on Palestinian lands and bodies and ideas, um, but there's always resistance to that. And Palestinians have been really um, strong and steadfast and driven by faith in their struggle for freedom and their religion in many different things in order to um, continue to counter uh, the realities and to strive for a new reality for the Palestinian community as a whole. Thank you, Jennifer. I, I wondered if either Jess or Aman wanted to say something uh, about that, thinking in terms of you know how how we act in relation to how we think about what Israel is. Yeah, I I really like what Jennifer said, and I think it's important since we we see something i mean you know obviously we're 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 facing this kind of profound contradiction right now because on the one hand the level of of destruction on palestinian bodies land culture is unlike anything we've seen in in a very long time but on the other side we're seeing global solidarity and the intersectionality of global solidarity in ways that we as a Palestinian community have never seen before. And, uh, and, and that speaks to something really important and it speaks to a different kind of analysis that I think we need to engage in because how is it, for example, that we're seeing this level of global solidarity 
across all sectors, across all spaces globally right now. And I'll say just from my own kind of small space, uh, I've been I've been working in you know in healthcare you know my whole professional life obviously, but this is the first time where healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, uh, staff, residents, learners within uh, within uh, the healthcare space have organized around Palestine solidarity. We've never seen this before. Perhaps it's related to the attacks, obviously, on hospitals and healthcare workers in Palestine. But we're seeing sectors and formations on Palestine Solidarity that we've never seen before, and you know, and and Jennifer's right. You know, we we we're not at the place or the space where we can kind of critically analyze that right now because we're in the middle of it. But it does give me pause. It gives me a sense of um, optimism and hope about what we're facing, and I think it's important to acknowledge that in the face of and in contradiction to the grimness on the ground for for our community in Palestine right now, because there's something happening now that is unique. It's different. And I think we're on the precipice of something that is truly very different than anything we've ever seen. So this is really a question for all of you that I'm about to pose. But before I do, let me just remind the audience that um, it is possible to uh, Post your question in the Q&A function, and uh, we will get to those shortly. We have three questions waiting for us right now. Um, but if you would like to, to pose a question, please feel very free to type in a question there, and we will definitely get to it. We have till 2 p.m. today. But before we go there, um, Jess, you mentioned in, in the beginning in contradistinction to the solidarity of health workers on the ground, the institutional failure. Um, I'm not quite sure what institutions you were thinking of. I'm certainly reminded of the fact that Israeli doctors in large numbers signed a a, a document saying that, that the siege on Ivesca and the denial of healthcare and of basic food and so forth was actually legitimate right, right after um, the beginning of the war. And the AMA so far, I believe, has refused to uh, to sign a statement of any kind asking for ceasefire. But this is not confined to the medical profession. I know, Jennifer, um, you're in critical ethnic studies, and I know Chris, critical ethnic studies has been targeted by the regents of the University of California lately in quite intense ways uh, for its statements. And Aman, of course, um, you, I know, were at uh, Urbana-Champaign during the time when Stephen Salido was one of the first academics to be denied a position on the basis of, of Palestine solidarity tweets. So I know that each of you has been fairly intimate with the kinds of repression that is being imposed upon us institutionally, as well as, of course, with the the huge media repression of Palestinian viewpoints, where even to be interviewed, you have to say that you condemn Hamas, whereas you know Zionist speakers are not asked to condemn the slaughter in Alaska. So I wondered if, if um, anybody, maybe start with you, Aman, just have comments about the larger institutional efforts to repress Palestine solidarity. That um, I should say, we'll also be talking about this on the second panel on Palestine and the law. But I think it's an important conversation to be having right now, as those of us in the UC are facing very direct efforts to censor speech on Palestine. 
don't want to put you on the spot, man. But but no, no, no. Set the I'm, ball, the ball rolling. I'm ready. I'm ready. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was gonna say I was gonna echo something that um we all like we all kind of mentioned um you know hope right and hope when you read you know there's something about engaging there's something useful about engaging with settler colonial studies genocide studies apartheid studies but there's something more productive about engaging with indigenous studies and through my work i realized that the essential distinction between what indigenous scholars write and what scholars of settler colonialism write. And, and most of the time, they're not necessarily indigenous. They are themselves settlers. Is indigenous writers center hope as a process, as a feeling, as an imagination, as something that we do beyond despair or against despair? You know, there's a reason why I mentioned um, that quote from Herzl about desperate people making the best colonizers. And I think in the process, even as we are being dehumanized as Palestinians by uh, settler colonialists and, and Zionists and all of that, we also fall into dehumanizing our colonizers or thinking about them in these really abstract terms, you know? And so I am for approaching institutions as, you know, groups of people that are very flawed and very problematic and, but also um, as something that we can counter, right? And I was also gonna say to that, that um, I kind of lost my thought about that. What was I gonna say? It was a really good idea too. Um, <laughs> no, I was gonna say, you know, just, just in very blunt terms, that oh yeah I know I remember I've been I've been um, working on this piece about hell and heaven, what these concepts mean in the context of settler colonialism and settler colonialism as a form of hell, and just you know what is really evil, right? And engaging with in discussions with a lot of people about that and the pattern that I'm seeing is evil is greed, right? Mm. Greed as the essence of what evil is. Um, there's a really like psychic, really weird psychic, really pathological attachment to the settler nation state and to the to its institutions. And the and these institutions, academic institutions on top of them are not really interested in the humanities anymore or in the sciences in a way that would make a better world. They're they're corporates, they're business people. And so I mean, I think that institutionally my I'm just gonna draw on some something I had to do this morning um, through my alma mater, through UIUC. Um, we're trying to um, uh, get a scholar, uh, like a medical student from Gaza through um, a program called Scholars at Risk to come to UIUC and to finish her medical degree. And I was messaging with her. Her name is Noura Shaar, and she's currently in Rafah. And she was telling me that she just lost a family member who has cancer and she took a picture of her, of her, um, you know, her, her, um, her coat, her medical coat, you know, and it has blood stains all over it. And she's saying um, cancer patients are really threatened to be, are in the process of dying at the moment because of lack of medical care. 
I think institutionally on a level of what we can do as people is to begin with creating these programs where we can actually support Palestinian students and scholars, where we can, in a context where, where all the universities in Gaza have been destroyed and a lot of academic scholars and writers have been killed and intentionally targeted, the thing that we can do now to begin with is to teach about Palestine and to protect Palestinian students. And I think this is the first goal. And this is something that is doable on the level of faculty, on the level of graduate students, even undergrads in support of their peers. And more so, go. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see what um, others say about this. But I know, you know, you mentioned um, critical ethnic studies. Critical ethnic studies was a product of a, product of a lot of protest and a lot of resistance. And I think it's about time. You know, one of the horrible things that came out of uh, the discourse around what's happening in Gaza is the comparison between Hamas and ISIS, and the comparison between October 7 and 9-11. And my first thought when I, when I saw that discourse was, well, there have been how, how many years, 22, 20 something years since 9-11, um, since and there has, and academia did nothing toward really fixing the kind of language that came out of that and really the damages. I mean, even the Israeli apartheid wall was a direct um, was a direct result of the discourse in the US around terrorism, you know? And so I think academics can do more and should do more. And when we're talking about hope and decolonization, we're also talking about really revamping, really recreating better structures for education where we actually teach toward actual freedom and liberation. Thank you. And then Jennifer, as our representative of critical ethnic studies here. Yeah, sure. Um, I, yeah, just to bring it into 9-11, I do feel like from the very beginning, this uh, period really felt reminiscent of that period. Um, I think the additional layer of um, social media, media and private corporate censorship um, sort of shifted that dimension a little bit and making it feel a little more heightened in terms of um, both how we access information, but then how it's not actually as clear as we think, right? Because all of this sort of deplatforming and censorship. So um, yeah, how do we move beyond these discourses that are meant to um, and uh, sort of be unending right like this uh war without end if you will on terror um sort of idea and like reinvoking those emotions in society which has had really material impacts on people's lives um including here in the united states uh so yeah but the definitely the university scale has been very interesting i think the university terrain is interesting because you have um this space that does make room to explore questions around palestine and other quote-unquote controversial issues more widely right than other spaces um but this these moves toward repression 
they really go hand in hand with how, especially for the public university, I think private is a totally different ballgame, <laughs> um, but for the public university, how um, the privatization has really impacted our ability to uh, uh, for intellectual inquiry and how those are related to things manifesting on the ground. Um, the region, the UC Regents is a great example of this where you have kind of a failed structure here. And I think it's really showing its head right now because you have these random, mostly men, right, who have a lot of money who were friends of the governor or appointed by the governor who really don't have any stake or at least any relationship to different fields of academic inquiry, right? And they're trying to wield their power and make decisions on our academic freedom, what we can and can't say, um, and making some of us their targets. Like right now, you know, there's a a war on Palestine and ethnic studies that's starting to coalesce um, uh, or it's being shown how they're coalescing right from um, Zionist uh, repressive actions and sort of these anti-critical race theory and anti-ethnic studies um, kind of working together to suppress speech that should be open and free right on a public university. Um, so there are major concerns because in reality, the structure of the university is so, and I'm just learning about this, but that these regions actually have more power than our you know, local um, campuses and academic, uh, you know, administrators, administrators that have actually been in academia, right, and might actually care about academic freedom more so than um, than the, this random collection of people appointed by the governor. Um, so I think the breakages of the insti the institutions are kind of being revealed and being broken apart right now, I think in these ways, and it's good for us to keep kind of talking about that and reflecting on that, especially here in California, because they're moving quick. I mean, you're, you know, trying, there's the website policy, but then also trying to take disciplinary and hiring and firing um, matters into the region's hands instead of the local campuses. And this is a really big, um, blow against academic freedom and the First Amendment um, and is trickling down to, you know, folks more vulnerable than those of us on the tenure track, including lecturers, graduate student um, teachers, and things like that. Um, and so we do have our work to do even just on the UC level and trying to protect those rights um, as a public institution, because while Palestine's being made an example right now, it sets precedent for anyone and anything. Um, and so, you know, and this is, you work on this too, David, but thinking about Palestine as ex an exception, and it really isn't so, it's, um, it goes hand in hand with these other 
sort of um, it's being used, it's being mobilized as a vehicle, right, to implement conservative policies that will target us all in the end, um, especially those of us um, in the humanities and social sciences asking these critical questions and doing different kinds of work. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, Jess, do you want to say a quick word about this before we move to the audience questions? David, you know never to ask me to make a quick word about anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I always tell that joke, if you ever hear me say, let me be brief, um, you know what's coming. Uh, let me be brief. Uh, well, I think in academic medicine, just to go back to your, your, your question, which I think is really good, hasn't had the same kind of critical analysis of the role of academic freedom in it. It's, it's kind of been given a pass. But now with the, the events of uh, October 7th, we see an acceleration of a, a kind of attack on academic freedom within academic medicine that we've never seen before. And I'll give you just a couple of quick, you know, quick examples. As you rightly point out, there were 100 Israeli physicians who wrote a letter basically and posted it globally saying that it's okay to bomb hospitals and kill doctors because these are, you know, part of the consequences of supporting terrorism, something to that effect. Well, obviously, um, people were outraged that they said this, that they published it, and that they got support. So a number of us, and I'm just giving a small example, wrote an article condemning that and basically saying there's never a justification under any circumstance that you would bomb a hospital, kill a patient, and destroy these sacred spaces. Uh, my colleagues and I tried to publish that um, uh, with the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was rejected multiple times. We tried other uh, avenues to publish it within academic medicine. It was rejected as being too political. Uh, eventually, we published it in a non-medical journal wh where it got a lot of um, a lot of interest. Obviously, globally, we've uh, a number of us have been trying to publish a piece on why, for example, neurologists should be concerned about what's happening in Gaza because the amount of concussive impact of the amount of bombs that are being dropped on densely populated areas throughout Gaza. That article was rejected on multiple occasions and um, because it's being too political. Now, I want to juxtapose that with the fact that the AMA and the Journal of the American Medical Association and the New England Journal of Medicine published widely when one hospital in Ukraine was bombed and condemned it, as it should, as it should, because no hospital should be bombed. But in the situation of Ukraine, there was wide acceptance and wide unanimity that the medical profession was going to be outraged by this. It was going to be articulated. It was going to be published. But here we go again with the Palestine exception, right? And so we're seeing that in academic medicine. We're seeing all these other cases, for example, where academic medicine leaders uh, are not just quiet about what's happening to healthcare facilities in Gaza, but actively shutting down faculty where we study the social determinants of health. We look at structural violence and its impact on health. That's an academic study within academic medicine. We're being told not to do that. We're being told that that is not the purview of the study of academic medicine now, only with Palestine. So 
the Palestine exception is rearing its head within academic medicine in ways that are, I think are flying a little bit under the radar because, you know, within the traditional academic spaces of universities where you have undergraduates and graduate education and things like that, you really, that stuff will get, you know, identified rapidly. But within academic medicine, because we don't take that discussion of academic freedom with the same vigor that I think we should, it's kind of flying uh, below the radar, which is really unfortunate because it's, it's pretty significant right now. Well, thank you for putting it on our radar screens, Jess. It's, it is extremely important. I think probably no more important issue right now. But let me turn to, to some of the questions that, that have been posted for us. Um, let me begin with one that's been there for a while, which is really two connected questions. And maybe, man, you could address this one first. Um, the second question, I think, came out of your remarks, uh, which is about California as, as an example of genocidal intent. Uh, this is from David uh, Glidden. Um, and... The, the upshot of it is this horrifying slaughter seems to serve as a template for Zionism. Is that a deeper bond between America and Israel? But it also goes along with the first question also from David Lydon, which is about the disturbing parallels between Syria's conduct in its civil war with the IDF conduct in Gaza, and whether this says something about a certain mental kinship between Syrian and Israeli attitudes and their apparently shared immoral values. Um, I, I wondered if you had anything to say about that since it, it seems to draw together um, two different situations. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you, David, for your questions. David Glidden, for your questions. Um, I, you know, I'm not a, necessarily an expert on the situation in Syria. There are folks out there who can speak so much better on it than I than I would um, or than I do. But I would say I would tie I would tie the two questions together with the whole issue with nationalism. Right? And nationalism at the intersection of power grab, population control, um you know, at, at the expense of, or how do I put it, kind of how it merges with the way this world now is highly surveilled, highly militant, um, highly technologically advanced when it comes to uh, tactics of control and surveillance that, you know, I mean, even looking at the genocide in Gaza, as people have been calling it, the first um, fully televised genocide, you know? So it's, it's almost, there's no shame attached to it. So I would, you know, bring that back to what I said about, um, I guess the violence of the nation state and also what greed and power do, right? And this is, in response to your first question. Um, in terms of the question about the Israel, um, America, American, Israeli American connection, um, definitely a, like perfect um, comparison, um, uh, perfect interconnectedness. Um, one thing I missed, one term I missed, uh, 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 I missed out on 
um, uh, using when I was responding to David's first question was uh, what folks call, what scholars call um, colonial erasure as an aspect of settler colonialism. And colonial erasure functions, uh, A, through genocide, uh, through whether we perceive it as, a, as an event or a structure. In the settler colonial example, it is definitely a structure. Um, the Nakba is a genocide. Sabra and Shatela are genocide, you know, and so on and so forth. These, these, these are these are um, great connections you're making between California and other parts of what we call now the United States. The other forms of erasure would include, you know, academic erasures, terminological erasures, uh, historical erasures, and with erasure, um, just to reference Patrick Wolf's. Um, you know, statement on it, settlers come to, to stay, basically. So it's erasure accompanied by settlement, occupation. Um, so if you erase the Palestinian history, you substitute that history with an Israeli narrative. If you're erasing California's history as a um, as an indigenous place, you erase you you um, you replace that with a history of missionization, with California nationalism, and so on and so forth. So I agree with you completely. Uh, I would say the deeper bond beyond just forms of erasure would be um, what I call like psychic attachment to the nation state. And because the United States was, you know, the United States was the first country to acknowledge Israel as a, as a country, right? So it started from the very beginning and American Zionism contributed majorly. There's a lot of literature out there about that uh, toward creating the Israeli project and so it's from the very beginning. There is there is even one at one point there was a proposal to make Israel the 51st state. And you can read about it online, which is kind of ridiculous. But beyond the um, military, strategic, political, uh, academic connections, there's also this emotional attachment that Americans have toward Israelis and Israelis toward Americans. And not to mention that a lot of Israelis have American citizenship and a lot of Jewish Americans have Israeli citizenships. So definitely deeper bonds that I hesitate to use the word kinship here because it has a positive meaning to it in indigenous spaces, but solidarity and kinship applies to settler relations as well, where people bond and kind of dehumanize Palestinians and natives in the process. I hope that answers the question. Can I just say a quick word about those questions? Um... It, over and above the question of psychic and moral affinities between Israel and the U.S. or Israel and Syria, I would want to say that the, it's very important to think about this in terms of counterinsurgency doctrine. Syria, under, the Syrian regime, understands itself to be conducting a counterinsurgency against informal armed actors as Israel considers itself to be conducting a counterinsurgency against Hamas and other armed organizations uh, that, have, that form the, the Palestinian defense forces in effect. But in counterinsurgency doctrine, civil society is actually part of the target because the thinking is you have to separate the armed insurgents from the civilian population. And there are two ways to do that. One is by by the destruction of their means of life to create a situation of despair, which which goes back to Zev Yabotinsky and the doctrine of the Iron Wall, which was precisely designed to to reduce the Arab population, so-called, of Palestine 
to a state of despair by having you know no option for resistance. And the other, of course, is simply by the obliteration of the means of survival to force the civilian population to abandon any thought of resistance. So the attacks on hospitals in both places, the attacks on civil institutions, whether schools or political sites or cultural institutions and so forth, all of that is, is precisely part of a counterinsurgency doctrine that follows its own logic irrespective of people's moral values that they espouse or in, in, in terms of their mentalities. And I think we have to very, very definitely see what's happening in Rizka now as an extreme version governed by an official doctrine of the Israeli military called the Dahiya Doctrine which explicitly states that it is their intention to destroy civil infrastructure. It's not actually you know, contingent damage done in a military struggle. It is part and parcel of what uh, Israeli counterinsurgency doctrine actually calls for. And, and you can read it, D-A-H-I-Y-A, Dahia, Dahia doctrine um, quite easily online. But let me move to, to another question. This one's for you, Jess, uh, in the first place, though I think others may have something to, to say about it. It's it's from Lean Kawas. Um, and it's about reactions of severe anxiety, fear, emotional detachment, and losing the ability to mourn are some symptoms of PTSD. But when people experience memories of the good moments, events in their lives, or thoughts of the most intimate moments while being under torture or being bombed, what is that called? Why do people experience such flashbacks while going through such horrors? I think very interesting question. Yeah, I think it's a very good question and, and I very much appreciate it. And um, that one of the reasons why it's such a good question is because in, in, in the way of thinking about and formulating and structuring an understanding of what the traumatic exposure for Palestinians in Gaza is now, the traditional Western notions and traditional psychiatric notions of, of PTSD simply do not make sense, do not fit, and are actually very much misaligned. And in fact, people have heard me say this, and I think it's important to say it again now, and I'll say it for decades and decades from now. The concept of PTSD does not fit in the least bit in any way, shape, or form with what's happening in Gaza right now, or for any Palestinian. There is no post in the traumatic experience of Palestinians in Gaza, or the West Bank, or Jerusalem, or historic Palestine in 1948, because the trauma has never stopped. With post-traumatic stress disorder, when you give that kind of diagnosis and you think about grief, from that perspective of getting through a traumatic event, the traditional formulation is you have a singular traumatic event, some time passes, you go into one of two categories, you, you, you either it gets resolved on its own or you, you begin to get symptomatic, thereby giving the diagnosis post after traumatic stress disorder. But for Palestinians in Gaza especially, there's never been a post especially for the last 16 years. And I would actually argue, if you think about the last 75 years, let alone the last 100 years, but especially the last 75 years, there's never been a diminution or an end to, or a post to the original traumatic exposure of the Nekba and the dispossession and the ethnic cleansing 
of over 750,000 Palestinians and over 500 villages from 1948. That traumatic experience for Palestinians is in each one of us from generation to generation to generation. And then on top of that, you throw other traumatic events like becoming a refugee, like the Nexa or 1967, or all of the other significant traumatic events of land dispossession and occupation that Palestinians experience on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis, that the concept of PTSD just doesn't cut it. And thereby, and this is why the question is so good, how, how is it possible to mourn when the traumatic exposure is there all the time? And so for Palestinians, and it's making me rethink in its totality, the notion of what grief is, how to metabolize and work through grief, and the possibility, or I should say the impossibility of grieving in the Palestinian context with what we're seeing historically and what we're seeing in the moment. And I'm afraid that I don't have a a very good answer for the question because I think it's a wonderful question because it's really forcing us to reformulate, rethink, and rearticulate our understanding of traumatic exposure, of grief and anxiety in a way that we've never had to do in in psychiatry or in mental health in the modern era. With that being said, I think it's going to force a kind of discussion and a reconfiguration of thinking about different kind of ways of, of thinking about not just the Palestinian experience, but also the black experience of 400 years of slavery and what it means to uh, African-Americans and Africans all over the world who are, the, who are the consequence of that settler colonial project or of any indigenous community, especially indigenous communities here in the United States, when we use that label, I believe inappropriately of PTSD because it really doesn't fit. And that, that means our understanding, our approach, and I'll, I'll kind of get to my final point here, why it's important because I get asked this all the time. It's like, well, how are we going to treat this? How are we going to help people with all this grief? And the, the, the answer for me is, is, is really, and I'm really giving this a lot of thought and thinking about it very carefully because I'm not quite sure that healing of this kind of trauma and grief is possible in the absence of justice, in the absence of self-determination, in the absence of, of true um, reconnection to the indigenous uh, spaces that Palestinians have had for so many, so many years, that in, as long as there's occupation, as long as there's settler colonialism, the idea of like a Western notion of healing grief or traumatic stress is really rather insulting, I think. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm making the kind of argument that justice first, healing next. Just do you, do you have any response to the question that has to do with with these flashbacks of good moments? I'm I'm thinking of the ways in which even in Israel, Palestinians are continuing to get married and talk yeah. about little moments of joy in their children when they discover their pet has not been killed. You know, just yeah, that there are some secret of sumud or resilience. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And I'm sorry I didn't address that because that's really, really profound. And anyone who knows Palestinians, especially those in Gaza, there is a secret sauce to that kind of resilience, okay? And the secret sauce is this kind of profound, if not dark kind of humor 
that all Palestinians have, and and especially in Gaza, uh, uh, the kind of insistence, if you will, on having that sense of humor in the face of really horrific times and moments and historical consequences. And I think that element is, is really critical in understanding why, even in Gaza, and even in talking to my colleagues, they will crack a joke with me, we'll, we'll share some laughter. There will be a tender moment between, between siblings or between parents and their children uh, that brings this moment of joy. And I think that comes from that, that kind of, that humor that every Palestinian has, that sense of humor, but also that sense of community and that sense of sharing in something and that sense of solidarity that Palestinians have amongst, you know, one another, we all have. And that sense that, you know, we're gonna get through this. It's that little bit of hope. And those beautiful moments of when you think of something very, you know, very joyful in the moment of all that darkness is, is a profound testament to that Palestinian sense of resilience in the face of what we're seeing right now. So I, I see it every day. I hear about it every day from my colleagues, frankly, and it's 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 something we can all learn from. Thank you, Jess. So uh, one more question here um, from Karim Matar. I'm gonna read the whole of it because it, it has an important citation in it. This line from Herzl's The Jewish State most stands out to me. We shall there, that is in Palestine, form a portion of a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. For me, this line unambiguously situates the Zionist project as rooted in Orientalism, as an organizing and legitimating logic of colonialism in the Middle East and further afield. To what degree do contemporary Israeli and American policies towards Palestine and Palestinians reflect this deep-seated Orientalist logic? And I'd add, of course, within days of October the 7th, Benjamin Netanyahu published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying this was a war of civilization against barbarity. So this is not only in Herzl. Jennifer, do you, do you have any comments about Orientalism in relation to this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this, I feel like you kind of answered your own question as well, which is that, yes, Zionism has a deeply rooted racist dimension to it um, through by way of Orientalism. And I think the Zionist state has never been shy in considering itself um, part of a European tradition. I think what's, uh, uh, and actually situating itself as part of Europe, really. Um, but what is interesting right now is that there is this, uh, there's a there's a tension there between this identification with Europe and this desire to um, claim indigeneity, to claim uh, the communities, uh, to be a, a community of color, right? Um, to and to have like uh, acknowledgement and honoring of this kind of difference as sort of a way to appeal to different demographics of people. So there is this. Um, long-term and deep-seated contradiction, I would say, between the state's own Orientalist practice, which is enshrined in its own state doctrine, right, um, of identifying with Europe and this claim of like thousands of years in this place of um, 
you know, uh, having uh, Arab ancestry, Sephardic ancestry, and things like that. Uh, so I, um, I think it's like an intentional contradiction in order to um, both identify with the empire, right, and the Euro U.S. Eurocentric sort of project of domination within the region, while sort of trying to propagandize this alignment of um, uh, justice, right, as a, um, a Zionism, as a sort of a social justice project, right? Uh, yeah. I don't know if Iman or anyone else would like I, to. I, well, Iman has her hand up, so Iman, yeah. go for it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't think Netanyahu, you know, spends any time of his day thinking about the Palestinians and how to best describe them. I think he's a he's a narcissistic fascist with a lot of words, and he probably plagiarizes himself all the time. Um, I think that one thing that I just want to add to Jennifer's, you know, amazing response is... Um, one of the patterns across settler colonialisms is um, exceptionalism or self-exceptionalizing. Self and so Netanyahu has been quoted many times saying, we are the only dem democracy in the middle of the jungle, uh, using barbarian and savage. And people make these connections with how natives and how Africans and how other populations around the world have been described. And I also want to use this as an opportunity to highlight, you know, the anti-Muslim specifically racism that, that has been coming out of this discourse, um, even, even in solidarity spaces where there's this comfort, there's internal orientalism that has to be worked through and worked out in order to really see the Palestinians as um, just uh, human beings who are resisting their own death. Yeah, that's just what I wanted to add. Thank you. There is one more question. I, I'm not sure if anybody can answer this, which is whether caste can be part of the explanation of what's happening in Palestine. I, I'm not sure if caste has anything to do with um, Zionist-Palestinian relations or even with internal relations within Palestinian society, but does anybody have a response to that question from Michelle? I, I was gonna say, I think this is also a question that was asked when I was making my first comments. Um, I don't have it would be yeah 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 I just um I think I need more clarification or explanation of the question to really properly respond to it but I would say there is you know in the context of settler colonialism and studying it there's a lot of connections made about uh, between Zionist nationalism and Indian nationalism or in Indian Hindu nationalism and just historically thinking about um post-coloniality in the context of India the permanence of cat of the caste system, but also the larger context of what um, uh, Dr. Um, Ghanam and Dr. Moghanam have talked about, um, and you, David, as well, about racism as really a tool for settler colonialism. Yes. I mean, maybe just to remind the audience that there has been an effort to ensure that the state of California includes caste discrimination among the uh, prohibited forms of discrimination and harassment in state institutions that I believe the governor vetoed when it came yeah. to his desk, um, which is extremely problematic. And people should 
pay attention to that that fact of of caste discrimination within certain communities and and its deleterious effects on on people's well-being and you know if you want to inform yourselves about it i'm i'm sure that it would not be difficult to do so including on this campus where there will be uh further screenings of films and events around this question of caste that you should keep your eye out for as they unfold I wondered if um, any of the panelists would like to make some closing remarks. Um, we have a few minutes left. I'm incredibly grateful to you for your stamina and um, for the brilliance of your responses, both to questions from the audiences and, and to the ones that we had established as the rubric for, for this panel. So thank you so much, Jess. I see you wanted to speak briefly again. Yeah, I, I first... First of all, I want to say how much I appreciated being with my two colleagues, uh, Jennifer and Iman, amazing scholars, and it's it was such an honor to share this time and space with you. And uh, I'm hoping we can do it again. And just uh, appreciation to you, David, and and to the center and at UCR for having the courage to put something like this together. This is this is not an easy lift in the University of California to be able to talk about Palestine so vigorously and so openly. So there's a, there's uh, I think that needs to be acknowledged and spoken. So thank you. Thank you, Jess. Um, I just want to acknowledge that we've had an extraordinary degree of support um, from various departments that I've already mentioned, um, but I will repeat them because I think they, they really deserve everybody's applause and, and thanks. That is, um, as well as the Center for Ideas and Society and the program Stream Decolonizing Humanism, uh, Faculty for Justice in Palestine, um, which is a growing organization on the campus, um, the Departments of English, Ethnic Studies, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Hispanic Studies, and also the Holstein Family and Community Chair in Religious Studies. And we are enormously grateful for the solidarity and support coming from those entities on campus. And uh, this is only the first in a series of three panels um, that I hope you will check out on the Center for Ideas and Society's website under the general rubric, Understanding Palestine. Um, thank you, Jess Ganim from the University of California, San Francisco, Eman Ganayam from the Washington University in St. Louis, and Jennifer Moganam from our sister campus, UC Santa Cruz. And thank you all so much for being here and for your luminous and really brilliant responses today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.